the book of Luke. We are at Luke chapter 8, verses 4 through 15. Luke chapter 8, verses 4 through 15. This also is God's holy word. And when a great crowd was gathering, and people from town after town came to him, he said in a parable, A sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it. And some fell on the rock, and as it grew up, it withered away, because it had no moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. And some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. As he said these things, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when his disciples asked him what this parable meant, he said, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. Now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they, heard, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while and in a time of testing fall away. And as for what fell among the thorns... They are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. As for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. May we go to our God and ask for his blessings upon the reading and the preaching of his holy word. Our Lord God, we thank you that you have given us the clarity of your word, that your word is authoritative in our lives. And Father, we admit to you, we confess to you how flippantly we come before you in your word, whether in our own devotional reading or in the reading and preaching of your word in public. And Father, we acknowledge how it is that we must be careful how we hear your word that let us not be forgetful hearers, but that we might be effectual doers and be blessed in what we do. Father, we pray that the good news of the gospel would go forward with power even this day, that your people would be nourished, that your people would cherish Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for we are great sinners, but we have in our Lord Jesus a great Savior. And we pray, Father, that he would be exalted that your servant will be humbled. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> the hearing of the word, the hearing that we have is not always active hearing. It's very easy to see this. You might ask someone that you said something important, and you might ask them, did you hear what I said? And they would say, yes. And then the follow-up question, 
What did I say? And then the answer is, as in they have no clue. So it's like, apparently, you didn't hear. This may have been something important. For example, someone who's backing up their car from their garage, and you tell the person, my car is parked behind your car, just outside the garage. Did you hear me? Yes. I, I told you my car is behind yours. And then two minutes later, you hear this crashing noise because it went in one ear and out the other. You realize that the word of God can do very much the same thing for us. If we're not attentive to God's word, it's not enough to be hearers of the word. It's not enough to be the possessors of the law. We must be those who obey the law. We must be those who are effectual doers of the law. And here we have this parable of Jesus, the parable of the soils. And there are these four types. Here we think about what Luke is doing. In Luke 7 earlier, he speaks and it, the Lord Jesus speaks, and he speaks about how the deaf will hear, the dead will be raised up, and the poor will have the gospel preached to them. But about that hearing, there are four types. He gives these four types, and every time the word of God is preached, it's as if these four types of hearing are, are going to happen. What will it be for you? Will you be those who are effectual doers? that you hear and you hold fast to the word with an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. The truth that we see in this passage, Luke 8, 4 to 15, your place in the kingdom of heaven is indicated by your heart's reception to the word of God. Your place in the kingdom of heaven is indicated by your heart's reception to the word of God. We'll look at this in three points. The first, general matters about the parable of the soils, verses 4 through 11. Second, the fruitless hearing of God's word, verses 12 to 14. And third, the good and profitable hearing of God's word in, verses, in verse 15. <clears throat> so the first point, general matter is about the parable of the soils. Here, the, the parable uh, from verse 6, or verse 5 and 6. A sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it. And some fell on the rock, and as it grew up, it withered away, because it had no moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. And some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. And as he said these things, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. We think about the scene. The scene is a great crowd was gathering there in verse 4, and a great crowd was gathering people from town after town came to him as he said in a parable. They were coming to the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here, it would have been a great thing for many to hear the word. But here Jesus is acknowledging that it's not merely the hearers of the word. There were many who came to hear him. You think about that scene in John 6 when he says, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood and then the majority, the vast majority of the crowds had said, uh, this, is a, this is a hard teaching, who can accept it? And they left. And then what remained were his 12. And he even said to them, you don't want to leave also, do you? So it's not so much the crowds that he was after. We think about the details of the parable. <clears throat> the general rule 
is that an allegorical interpretation of Scripture is incorrect. That's a general rule. But here, it's temporarily suspended because Jesus, as the divine interpreter, interprets it allegorically. The seed is the word of God, according to verse 11. So that's an allegorical interpretation, but it must be correct because the Lord Jesus himself gives it. The soils are human hearts. The good soil is the good heart. Here, we have the explanation of the parable also. Jesus explains his parable to his disciples. Ultimately, for the preaching of this text, uh, what's, what's not so much needed is the explanation because Jesus explains it. But rather, it's the application. It's the implementation in your life and in mine. We see how important that this parable is for today. Every time that the word of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, is proclaimed, the principles that are taught apply, and these categories of hearers are being formed. Here we have the topic of the word of God. And it's the reading and the preaching of God's word. They're both elements of worship. And how we must prepare our hearts to receive God's word. That our hearts must be ready. That if we step in to, to worship late, we're a bit flustered. That our minds are thinking about uh, how many stop signs we had to roll through. Or maybe a red light that you had to run. And, and what, what happened where not anyone got injured. If you're thinking those things, then your mind isn't on the word of God. Here, you think about how necessary it is that before the word of God is read and preached, that we go to our God in prayer, that we go to him, that we ask the Holy Spirit to guide us, that we might have humble hearts to receive. Here, we think about how important the word is and how often is it that at the end of the day on Sunday or by Wednesday, if someone were to ask you, what word did you hear preached on Sunday morning? How many of us would say it was this passage and this is what I, this is what I took home from it? Here, it's so easy for the word to, to go in one ear and go right out the other. Just as if someone shined a flashlight through one ear, they might see light go out the other side. The word goes in and it, and it passes through. And how it is only by the work of the Holy Spirit that the word will actually dwell in our hearts. And that by the power of the Holy Spirit, it would transform your life and mine. So these, this is the first point. General matters about the parable of the soils. It should be parable of the soils. The second point, the fruitless hearing of God's word. We have this uh, in verses 12 through 14. The ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while and in time, in time of testing fall away. And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. Here, we think about uh, the, the first three types of hearers, and these are the three types of hearers that we do not want to be. 
The first one mentioned is referred to as the dismissive or the hardened heart. Uh, the, the old English would refer to it as the wayside hearer. This is, these are the seed that fell along the path that was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it. Jesus interprets that to be the birds of the air devoured it, and Satan comes and snatches away the word. In other words, there is no dwell time. There is no dwell time of the word in the heart of the dismissive uh, hearer. He doesn't meditate on God's word day and night. He doesn't hide God's word in his heart. It's common uh, to have this person think as he's considering a topic. Uh, he, he will often think, oh, well, this topic X, the scriptures don't say anything about this topic. But oddly, if you and I are meditating on God's word, it seems to address so much the everyday topics of life. Because the scripture addresses principles. It often doesn't ex express or, or address the matter of details. Though it does. But you realize that in, in everyday life, right, how the scriptures address things is through principles. It doesn't talk about the TV and how many hours of it we should watch. It doesn't mention TVs. Here, we think about how God is using principles to address his people, the principles that continue. We think about how there is a lack of internal effect on the dismissive heart. There's no effect on the conscience because the word of God doesn't dwell in the heart. The description of that soil is that it is hard-packed soil. It's, it's the, the seed that fell along the path that, that gets stepped on and it gets compressed. So there is a hardened heart there. And oftentimes, for people... Uh, who are dismissive, that they will be the ones who say, oh, it would have been great if so-and-so were here to hear that word preached. Because they think it applies to somebody else rather than themselves, rather to myself. That God's word for the dis dismissive hearer is being judged to be of little importance, and it is simply dismissed. Here we think about how active the devil is. Anytime the true gospel of Jesus Christ is preached. That as God is in this house, the devil is also in this house too. And the devil knows how important, how prime time it is. Because here he thinks, he thinks about what's at stake. He knows what is at stake. You see there in verse 12. The ones along the path are those who have heard... Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. Here, what's at stake is your salvation, your eternity. Your soul is at stake right now. Here, we think about what happens when the word of God goes forward. That there is opportunity for sinners to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. That very statement in verse 12, so that they may not believe and be saved. There is there contained the gospel call of Jesus Christ. And the devil is the one who comes to steal and to kill and to destroy, according to John 10.10. 10. But Jesus is the one who comes so that you may have life 
and have it abundantly. The Satan, the devil, is the one who comes who desire to take that seed away, to take the good news of the gospel away. But instead, we have the urgent call that you would believe upon Jesus Christ, that you would hear the message of salvation, that you would trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, that this is your hope, this is my hope, that Jesus, who died on the cross 2,000 years ago, that he died in the place of sinners, and that he is the one who was our substitute. He died the very death that we deserve to die. Believe upon him and be saved. Trust in him for eternal life. The devil's motivation is very simple. What the devil wanted for himself, keep in mind he was the highest angel. What he wanted for himself, he lost. He wanted God's place and he lost it. And in the gospel, he's trying to take away from you what he think he had. So here, the devil wants to rob you of what it was that he wanted. He tells all kinds of lies. Here, you think about what happened in the garden with Adam and Eve. God simply said to Adam and Eve, that if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. Satan steps in there and says, no, 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 you will not surely die. He tells him about how the good things, then your eyes will be open and you will know good and evil. Ultimately, he's saying, hey, God is robbing you. He's trying to keep you from having fun. He's trying to hold back from you that which is good. And here we see that what Adam and Eve did was they dismissed him. They dismissed what God had said. They believed what Satan had lied to them about. At the very matter of the gospel of Jesus Christ is at stake. Anytime the gospel goes forward, you and I dismiss God's word at our own peril. So that's the dismissive heart. We have also the impetuous or hasty heart in verse 13. And the, one, and the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while, and in a time of testing, fall away. <clears throat> this also is referred to as the rocky ground hearer. There is an immediate effect. Is it the, the sun that, that heats up the rock underneath? It has a little bit of dirt on top of that rocky ground that there's warmth there. So a seed, seed falls there and the seed, because of the warmth, immediately sprouts. But because the depth of the dirt is not there, uh, the roots don't set. There's no roots. And this is the common error with emotionalism. We see, we see the immediate effect that they receive it with joy. When they hear the word, they receive it with joy. And here, I want to give you the, the warning, the caveat, that I'm not saying that emotions are necessarily wrong. That the good news of the gospel must at least affect our emotions. You think about what Jesus commands as the first and the greatest commandment, Mark 12, verse 30. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. If we're going to love God with all our heart, it must necessarily include our emotions. But the word of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, must not stop there. It's not merely our emotions. We must be doers of the word. We must obey God's word. It's not merely that we receive it with great joy because we've understood it and that we see that we're right and other people are wrong. 
That's not what the word of God is about. But rather, that you and I would hear the word. That we would trust in Jesus Christ. That we would put it into practice. This is what God calls us to. And those who are involved in emotionalism are so excited. And, and they have an emotional response, that of feelings. But it doesn't get any farther than that. We see what happens for such people. Uh, we're told that they believe for a while and in a time of testing fall away. This time of testing is that of op- opposition. Uh, the other gospels in this passage speak about affliction. Whether it be disease or financial hardship or relational troubles. You think about the afflictions that hit us. The Christian at times might even say in such candid words, God, you are supposed to make my life easier, not harder. And here I'm wondering whether or not you are worth serving. Perhaps at times, for every Christian, these are the thoughts that go through our minds. We have to ask those questions because we have to come to the right answers. Oh, no, wait a minute. I'm not serving God because he makes my life easier. I'm serving God because he is worthy of it. He commands it of me. You think about the life of Job. Wasn't this the life of Job? That he, he had the loss of his wealth. He had the loss of his children. And eventually he had the loss of his health. And if we look at it, it seems as if his relationship with his wife wasn't even that great. If she was telling him, curse God and die. But his, his own health was lost. He had boils all over his body. Is it the case that you are loving God's blessings? Or are you loving God himself, who is your greatest blessing? Perhaps you've heard these statements and you're saying, I I don't see the distinction between the two. This is not two ways to say the same thing. We're loving his blessings, meaning we, we love the good things that he gives us. Or are you loving him? Are you loving God? Is, is he your greatest blessing? And it's during times of affliction that the Lord examines our hearts. That this question, am I loving his blessing or am I loving him? That's the question that we have to ask ourselves. This is, this is the hurdle that we have to pass. It's when affliction comes that we're being tested. And for the Christian, we must be able to come to the conclusion, God, you are our blessing. The difficulties come. I'm still worshiping you. I'm clinging to you more tightly rather than more loosely. We think about the persecutions that come. In our society today, uh, being a follower of Christ, you might get shamed. People laugh at you. People ridicule you. Or even worse, they might cancel you for being a Christian. Back then, it was flogging or stoning or mob violence. In other places of the world today, uh, it's the same. Flogging, stoning, and mob violence. The spilling of blood. Perhaps our society will come to that. You think about persecution. Think about Acts 5. The apostles. 
They were given strict orders by the Jewish council, you must not preach in this name anymore. Told that they were flogged, and then they were sent on their merry way. And what would they do? They didn't say, you know what, we've counted the cost, and this Jesus isn't worth it. You know, that's not what they said. They went on their merry way, and they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. This is the right conclusion. That whatever cost there is in this life of following Jesus, those costs are next to nothing compared to having Jesus as our Lord. You think about the life of Jacob. He was swindled, cheated by his future father-in-law, Laban. And we're told that he named his own price. Laban asked him, hey, it is because we're relatives. Should you work for me for nothing? He says, hey, name your price. He says, oh, well, I'll work for you seven years for your, your daughter, Rachel. And we're told because he loved Rachel, seven years of work, that was like nothing to him. And so also that you and I would think serving Jesus Christ, this is not a chore. This should be a joy to us. It's a reminder to us that we must take joy in serving him. It is a privilege to serve our Lord Jesus Christ because he indeed is good, that he is a gentle and a loving master. Here we also have the third type, which is the preoccupied or the half-heart. And the older versions refer to it as the thorny ground hearer. <clears throat> there in verse 14. And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. This is the, the hearer with the divided heart. Think about these three things, the cares of the world. There are debts to be paid. Uh, there are bills uh, to be paid. There are children to raise and aging parents to be cared for. But we ask, we all have these duties at some point in our lives, but do they become an excuse for us from serving God? Here we think about the riches. Think about the example of Lot's wife. That they were cold, they were told, the angel told them to leave. Uh, they, they lived in Sodom, is it? And they were told to leave. And apparently there was something about her home, something about the life, the status that she had, that she didn't want to leave it. And then she turned back and looked and turned into a pillar of salt. I think the implication is she died. But you think about these riches. It's easier for the camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And it doesn't have to be someone who has great wealth. It merely has to be someone who desires and loves wealth. The warnings are there. Jesus gave it, Matthew 6. This person who tries to serve both God and mammon, Jesus says it cannot be done. You cannot have two masters. Riches, we have to have money in this life in order to get by. That's how life is. So how do you, how do you balance that? How, how do you work that? Well, we think about riches, they ought to be good servants to us. They must never be masters because they are cruel and harsh masters. The lesson that we must learn 
is that regarding our wealth, there must be a willingness to part with it now because you will part with all of it at death. Nobody takes it with them. This is why Jesus tells us we ought to seek heavenly riches where thieves do not steal, where moth does not destroy. Here, we think also of the pleasures of life. This is, this is not Jesus saying that all pleasures are sinful or wrong. That he gives us pleasure. He is the one who, that wants us to take pleasure in him. That he is the one who he gives us uh, the pleasant weather. He gives us the tasty food. He gives us uh, all kinds of good things to enjoy. But the question is, are you and I living for pleasure? The warnings in 1 Timothy about the young widow who were told that she lives for wanton pleasure, she is dead even while she lives. It's not true simply of young widows. It's true of anyone who lives for pleasure. Here, you ask yourself, are we willing to transgress God's law for the sake of pleasure? That he's given us pleasure and he's given us boundaries, all kinds of boundaries. And if we're willing to transgress those laws to have pleasure, then it's saying that pleasure has become our master. Here we think about the, the thorny ground hearer. What happens, we're told, is that they are choked by the cares, riches, and pleasures of life. There's a constriction that goes on. And the result is that the fruit doesn't mature. It's a question of priority. Do these things, the cares of this life, the riches and the pleasures of this life, are they a far greater priority to us than worshiping and serving the Almighty God? Here, perhaps some of you are wondering this question. For these three types of hearers, are they saved? Are these people in the kingdom of God? At bare minimum, we must say that their assurance will be lacking. But there are certain cues in the text that indicate that salvation also is lacking. Verse 12, about the wayside hearer, that the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. See also in verse 13 about the rocky ground hearer. And a time of testing fall away. This shouldn't be the description of a Christian who's trusting and faithful to the Lord Jesus. About the thorny ground hearer that their fruit does not mature. That this is, should not be the model for us. This, this should not be what we aspire to as Christians. So that's the second point, the fruitless hearing of God's word. We have the third point, the good and profitable hearing of God's word. We have that in verse 8 and verse 15. And some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. In verse 15, as for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. You see the description. There are several phrases given about uh, the good soil, the seed that falls upon 
the good heart. We must hold fast to the word. We must hold fast to the word. We must hold tightly to the promises, the doctrines, the standards, that is, the commandments of God's word. There's all kinds of people around us who say, can't you just accept this, whatever that might be? Take that page, in fact, not even the whole page, just take that page, take that line, and use a permanent marker and just black it out. And you realize, well, it's not just that one line because then you have to find other places in multiple spots where you have all these Sharpie marks and before you know it, uh, you've, you've uh, corrected the word of God. Here, holding tightly is especially important when the word of God is unpopular. Do not expect Christ to be popular. Here, when he is popular, then there's going to be this mix that the, the church will be mixed with the wheat and the tares. You think about the unpopularity of Christ, his word. His word will be opposed. There will be reviling. There will be ridicule. There will be naysayers. How can you be so sure about this? How do you even know that's the word of God? It's not really clear. You know what? Uh, church fathers throughout history have debated this question all the time. So you can just do whatever you want. It's especially when Jesus and his word are opposed that you must hold fast to it. You think about the warnings that Jesus gives. The righteous view, the faithful way will never be the wide gate and that broad path. Because those lead to destruction, we're told. And many enter through it. That's the way of popularity. If we're trying to determine how to interpret God's word, and we're looking to the world to give us direction, we're, we're on that path right there. We're on that path of destruction. The gate is small, and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. It is the unpopular path. You must accept that. And then hold fast to it. Hold fast to Christ and his word. Here, we are also told that we must hold fast to it in an honest and good heart. An honest heart means a heart that's not overcome by self-deception. You think about the various things, various excuses that people can come up with as you and I are being confronted with the word of God. Hey, listen, I'm doing fine right now. I don't need the correction or the guidance of God's word, especially not from that, that obnoxious preacher man. You think about, there's nothing said. There's nothing said about the sower. Ultimately, the, the sower is Jesus Christ. He has people that he sends. And, well, this guy sews with his left hand. That guy sews with his right hand. And this guy does the finger roll. And that guy does the sky hook to, to, to scatter the seed. It doesn't matter. There's, there's, there's nothing important about that. But the question is, the word of God to you in your heart. The pattern of sin, the nature of sinners, is that there is suppression. 
Romans 1.18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. This is self-deception. God has said this, I don't need that. I have this. That applies to everyone else but me. Or everyone else but you. This is not an honest heart. An honest heart says, when God diagnoses man's sinful condition, I am included in that diagnosis. He has provided a cure, and that is Jesus Christ. And every sinner, man, woman, and child, infants included, we must drink deeply of that cure. Here, there's the matter of the good heart. We must have a good heart. There's a clarification. Jesus said it himself. Why do you call me good? There is none good but God alone. Good refers to a heart that is able to be taught, humble to receive, willing to learn and to grow. How easy it is to teach whatever lesson it is when people are ready and willing to learn. But when there is a resistance, there is an unwillingness, then it seems like the first thing that has to happen is there has to be a convincing, a persuasion of this applies to you. You need to hear this. You need this. Here we think about how God often gets our attention through that affliction. He gets our attention through the difficulties of life. And it's during those times that we finally say, okay, the suffering has been great. Now you have my attention. What, what do you want me to learn? And it's then that uh, the Lord teaches us. And how quickly then does he need uh, to teach us that lesson yet again? Here, we think about this bearing fruit with patience. Or bearing fruit with steadfastness. Have you ever met these people who are into fads? Whether it be a fad diet, uh, Atkins or South Beach or whatever, keto. They're, they're into these fad diets. Right? They're the ones who, uh, end, of, end of last year, they, they weren't darkening the door of a gym. But then, you know, come January 1st, right, they didn't go at all. But then suddenly they're trying to go like five times a week. And... By now, middle of February, they're not going to the gym at all. You think about consistency. There's inconsistency. That uh, they're the ones who are on fire for the Lord. They'll argue with everyone. They have something to say. They're the know-it-alls. They take on all opposition. They want to be the trendsetters. You, you, you hear about these Christians. Some of them have been ministers that difficulty comes, complacency comes. They're no longer the trendsetters. They don't have people following and admiring them. And to them, the Lord Jesus is no longer worth following. At least we know what they're really made of. But here, you think about holding fast to the word and bearing fruit with patience or with perseverance, with steadfastness. This patience... The steadfastness means continuing under a steady, uh, continuing steadily under a heavy load. 
that we have in our Lord Jesus one who helps us bear our burdens. That his burden is easy and his yoke is light. Here, the description is that of a Christian who is consistent. There's consistency in life. There is a, perhaps, uh, the growth is slower, the commitments come a little bit slower, but there's consistency in it. And that the, the, the evidence is that there is fruit that the tree produces year after year, season after season. That this description ought to be of you and of me. Here we think about the example that we read earlier in Second Kings chapter 5 about Naaman the leper. The story is very interesting to me. You have this name in the leper. He was some kind of a general, a commander uh, in Syria. And we're told he was a great man. And I hope you can see that in the story, there's evidence that he is a great man. The evidence is that people who are lowly in his household could actually speak to him, and he listened to them. He obeyed them. Meaning the servant girl, the Israelite servant girl, said, said to uh, her mistress, Hey, uh, for our master... It'd be great if he talked to the, uh, the prophet from Samaria, that he might be healed of his leprosy. He acted on it. He was willing to do something about it. And, and then he was, uh, it's almost as if he were, he were dismissed or he was disrespected in that Elisha didn't come meet him face to face. He sent a messenger and said, hey, uh, the prophet says, go, go, uh, go wash in the Jordan seven times and then you'll be clean. He went away angry. He went away in a rage. And he... He starts this sinful reasoning. Hey, what about the rivers of Damascus? Aren't they all better than the rivers of Israel, of, of the Jordan? He, he started reasoning of all the, all the ways that the instruction he was given was wrong. And again, it was one of his servants who said, Hey, did this prophet give you instruction to do this? And this great man, if he told you to do something, shouldn't you do it? The fact that this servant could approach him and rebuke him. And he actually listened, indicated that he was a great man. And you think about what he did. He didn't go away with a rage. He didn't slit the throat of that servant who, who rebuked him. Instead, he listened. He went there. He washed in the Jordan seven times. And what was the result? He was healed. Here, we think about how it is that there ought to be childlike faith. There ought to be a simple obedience in each of your hearts, in my heart. If this situation, you think about, a specific instruction from an Old Testament prophet, how much more so should you and I be listening to the word of God when God speaks? Every word in the Bible is breathed out by him. That when he speaks, you and I ought to obey. We ought to obey quickly. That we ought to obey without complaint, uh, without delay. Here, you think about how Naaman, if he eventually blew off the words of Elisha and said, you know what, I'm not going to wash seven times in the Jordan. I can wash five times in the Farper River, would he have been healed? I'm thinking he probably wouldn't be. If he went to the Jordan Wash four times rather than seven, would he have been healed? I don't think he would have been. But whatever's the case, you think about how 
he would have walked away from blessing of the Lord, the blessing of healing from, from leprosy. And so also is true for you and for me. When we hear God's word, but we do not obey it, we do not cling to it, we do not trust in it, are you and I foregoing the blessings of God? That instead of arguing with the Lord, arguing with his word, we should be humble and ready to receive it and trust in him. Here, James instructs us, James 1.25, that we ought not to be forgetful hearers, but instead we ought to be effectual doers, and that there is a promise there that those who are effectual doers are, are those who will be blessed by the Lord. Here, this scripture is a helpful reminder to us often that we come to church, we worship the Lord, we hear his word read, we hear it preached, but we acknowledge that there is a spiritual battle every time you and I are confronted with the word of God. Will we be the dismissive hearer who just, ah, whatever, dismisses it? Will there be uh, a response of great joy, of emotionalism, but it doesn't bear fruit. It doesn't come to action. Are we going to be choked by the cares, the riches, and the pleasures of life? That somehow the priority of God's word, the priority of Jesus Christ, never makes it to the top place. There must be prayer as you and I prepare to receive God's word. We must approach it with prayer. God, give me eyes to see. Give me ears to hear. Help me to see my own need. That as heads of households, husbands, as fathers, there ought to be prayers not only for ourselves. There ought to be prayers for those in our household that our wives, our children also would hear. That we would desire to be godly examples to them of those who hear and obey. Here we think about how important this is. That the devil is ready to snatch away that word that someone will not believe and be saved. That there is a great spiritual battle going on. That we must be careful how we hear God's word. That we would receive it humbly. That we would trust in Jesus Christ. That we might cling to him. That we might desire that others would hear this good news also. And that we would acknowledge that God's word is not about pious advice and practical suggestions. It is life and death. It is eternity. It is damnation or salvation. And that when we hear it, we must believe upon Jesus that we might be saved. May we go to our God together in prayer. Our Lord God.